Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team in MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond, having a little fun along the way. I'm Dr. Joe Salustio. I'm at about a 50% rate of saying my own name on these episodes now. I always say a name that matters so much to me, and that is Liz. How are you today? I'm doing amazing. How are you? I'm good. Hey, Liz, did you know that all of our episodes are on our website at www.edupexperience.com? I heard. Yeah, I went did. over there. I uh, visited. Well, and you know, we spend the time um, on our spare time to go and categorize all of our previous episodes into areas. So if somebody's interested in ed tech, they can find everybody we interviewed for ed tech, for community college, for private college, for executive search, and so on. Uh, and we spend some, some quality time doing that. So it's easy for our listeners. Of course, we would love if you would subscribe to our new, our, I'm sorry, newsletter, our email list. And of course, if you support the EdUp experience, you can head to Apple and give us a rating and review. We have some lofty, uh, lofty goals for 2021. Liz, uh, I have lofty goals. I know you have lofty goals. One of our goals here at the Edup Experience is to bring on very interesting people and possibly be a podcast of firsts. Hint, hint. And I'm not going to tell you what the first is until after I introduce the guest. But Liz, can you guess? Before I tell everybody the first, can you guess what the first is on this episode? Oh, you, oh, I don't know. You actually, you stumped me. This is, this is a first for me that I've been stumped by you because I cannot think of what well, this don't is. Start, don't start not telling the truth. I've stumped you a million times, I just for the record. <laughs> okay, well, this might be the first time this year or oh, this month. <laughs> let's, let's, let's give you the one up. Uh, speaking of, uh, of executive search and I, I tease that out for a minute because on the line right now, we have Lauren McCarran, and she is a higher education senior executive search consultant at Greenwood Asher and Associates. Lauren, welcome to the EdUp Experience. Thanks so much. How are you guys doing? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm great. How are you doing, Liz? She's on, <laughs> she's on mute again, everybody. <laughs> Oh my God! You caught me. <laughs> you just confused her, Joe. She's just yes. all confused. Oh, well, I, <laughs> he did. It's I'm a little bit of a payback, confused. Lauren. The other day it, we were still brainstorming. Oh, yes. we were doing a podcast the other day, and uh, Liz goes through this like long song and dance, this build up to this question. I'm like, let me just go eat lunch. I'm gonna eat lunch while I'm sitting here, and the guest answers, and then Liz turns around and goes, Joe, what do you think about that? And I was like, uh, Oh man. Uh, yeah. Oh, I had man. no idea. But you were you it was like an alley oop. You slam dunked it. I didn't even notice that. That oh, I didn't know that until you told me that's how you were. Well, you didn't stumble at all. So Lauren, do Let's you know here. do you know what the first is for us here at the Edip Experience? Maybe I do I have a hint at what the first is. Oh, yeah. Okay, can you please enlighten my co-host? Yes, please do. 
So Liz knows that my husband was on this podcast just a few months ago. So I believe I'm the first partner to follow. Is that correct? The first husband-wife combo. <gasps> Both, there you yes. go. Both. Uh, sometimes it's so obvious you can't even uh, see it. And my favorite guest, too. My favorite guest oh, of Christmas. all time of the 140-plus episodes that we've had. So we, we, we Yes, love but Chris. you are not all... You're not allowed to make comparisons. You have to make that promise no. to me now. No, <laughs> you know. you guys, you, as a as a wife, I will tell you, you guys are one. So if he's the best, you're the best too. So that's there that's you how go. We run things in my household. So I'll I'll do the same thing for you guys. Well, as much as we love Chris McCarran, which we do, this ain't about you, Chris. This is about yes, Lauren today. Lauren we're gonna, in the building. Yeah, we're gonna put her on the hot seat. Um, Lauren, thank you for coming on. We, you know. Uh, besides the fact that, you know, you and your husband both work in higher education, which makes one of my first questions about what the table talk sounds like, but we can, you know, you don't have to give us a two, two, uh, an inside lens, inside uh, view into those conversations, or if you don't talk about higher ed at all. But I think, you know, one of the biggest questions I have for you is, you know, executive search right now. And I think anybody that's ever looked for a job in higher ed has come across Greenwood Ashton Associates before. Uh, you've had challenges too, right? There's been a lot of people who've stayed in positions because of, uh, uh, you know, reti not retiring to help the coronavirus. There have been a lot of people who've been uh, reduced or rift because of coronavirus, and there just haven't been as many jobs uh, in higher ed. So has it been tough to find openings sure. and to find people? No, it's a great question. I'll start out by saying that uh, Chris did have a wonderful experience on your show, and I'm very honored to follow in his footsteps. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, but yeah, I do have a, a unique perspective um, from kind of the outside of the higher education executive search world. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit, everything just froze. Um, I would say with the exception of the searches we had going, you know, as um, an executive search firm, we were very used to Zoom. You know, it's funny, I think back, um, if a university decided to do virtual interviews, I would have to make you know, personal calls to the candidates and tell them how to download Zoom because they had never used it before. And I had to practice with them in that virtual environment. <laughs> and now, of course, you know, everybody knows it like the back of their hand. And so certainly that that stage of the process has been eliminated throughout this pandemic. People are much more comfortable on it. But our searches were able to continue forward um, with really no issues on schedule. I would say we did have a very sad situation where, you know, one person in a, in the search process who was a very key player um, got COVID. And so that cert, one search was delayed a little bit for, you know, all the right reasons, um, but still had a con successful closure. Um, but once enrollment really evened out um, came September, then um, our phones blew up because, I mean, leadership right now is an imperative. And you, a lot of re universities recognized that they needed strong leaders to lead them through this. Um, and I would say that, you know, innovation was a new priority, um, much more so than it had been in the past. So it was a really exciting time for us. Um, and I would say that while people were hesitant, you know, to look for opportunities at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was that real sense of loyalty to their institutions, which is very admirable. Um, now that, you know, they're on founder footing and the, it's a really competitive market out right now. There are a lot of positions um, where universities are in a, a good um, financial situation. You know, they are putting that emphasis on um, looking for the best and the brightest, um, whereas other universities um, that may not be as on such found financial footing, um, you know, they are being more conservative. You see a lot of internal hires and promotions um, to those executive leadership positions. So there's a mix. Um, there's really two sides of it. But for those positions that are, you know, utilizing search firms like ours, um, it's a great market um, for the universities to be out there recruiting talent right now because, man, people are, you know, anxious to move up in organizations to really make a difference. They see the opportunities to be innovative where they may not have been before. Um, and so it's a great time to be looking for great talent. You know, I, it's funny, by, by the way, um, 
you know, not everybody knows how to use Zoom so effectively. Liz <laughs> will have trouble staying <laughs> off of mute. Um, she, she mutes herself. Uh, just earlier uh, this week, in fact, I was uh, thought Liz was talking, but nothing was coming. Uh, no, no sound was coming through. So anyway, we'll work on it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to tutor me after. I, I'm like the, the, the bad student that has to stay after class and get extra help. So you're going to tutor me. It's always one in the crowd. One. Uh, but Lauren, you know, one of the things that, you know, you said you talked about is innovation becoming a, a, an imperative for leadership. And this is a big question I have because I I feel, and this is a general feeling I have, um, and it's supported by the number of people we've interviewed uh, here at, at UP across all leadership, right? Um, it's been college presidents, but it's been others. It's been ed tech. The profile of what's needed in the highest level of leadership for a university, and my mind is changing. There's this wait, new wave of I don't know, uh, leaders in higher ed that have a unique combination of entrepreneurialism, of, of startup mentality, plus higher education experience that are going to be the, the types of leaders that take higher ed to the next, you know, the next uh, step versus, you know, your traditional academic, um, you know, that comes through. That's my take. What do you think about what I'm saying? Am I totally full of it? Oh, or no, you're, hit, any... you're hitting the, no, you're getting the nail on the head. Um, at the beginning of this pandemic and prior pandemic, um, I'm sorry, uh, before the pandemic, the uh, search committees that we worked with, you know, we always start off a search with having in-depth conversations with the search committee, with the constituents of the university, whether that, you know, that's students, alumni, faculty. I mean, we can have day-long, multi-day-long listening sessions to really get a sense of what are the desires for this next, you know, president or other executive leader, whoever it might be. And before the pandemic, um, it was really, you know, we need to them to check this box, these boxes. They need to have been a tenured professor. They need to have been a dean. They need to have been a provost. You know, they need to have gone through all of the levels of the organization, done this, this, and this. And we have really seen that conversation shift. And I'm really proud of the search committees in particular, um, because instead of talking about, you know, what have they in particular done, it's more so, you know, what are the attributes that we need in this position? You know, can they be innovative? Do they have vision? Can they look at details? Are they data oriented? And they can look beyond just the position to those attributes and say, you know, maybe we don't need somebody who's, you know, checked all these boxes. You know, maybe we can have non-traditional candidates who, you know, as long as they have, are, if you're looking at their outcomes, have achieved this level of responsibility and have really made an impact in their organization, um, then, you know, maybe they would be a great fit for where we are headed, because I think that that's just, you know, the big question mark right now is where are all of these universities headed? Um, it looks different for everybody and everybody's digging deep right now and having those conversations and it's being reflected in the executive searches. And I'm really proud of the search committees for being nimble in that area, whereas traditionally that was most certainly not the case. <laughs> mm. Interesting. Liz, uh, you can come on in or else I'm going to keep going because I just like, you know, the ultimate person behind the curtain is a search committee. And you really do wonder, Lauren, who is on these search committees and how do they really think and how do you get, you know, to to, you know, get in front of them in a way that that is meaningful uh, through your search consultant. And, you know, so how to how tip. Here's the question. I think this is <laughs> when you talk about tips. Do candidates lobby you? Do they try to lobby you for stronger presentation of their material? Do you, how do you take the people who are applying for this job and sift through them to give the search committee the best palette to choose from? <laughs> 
the insider's view. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's different for well, it's different for every search committee. Um, when it comes to the makeup of the search committee, you know, you really are seeing that broad swath. They want to have representatives from every um, constituent group, and then a lot of times, you know, universities will publish that search committee on their websites. A lot of times, they won't, um, and we typically don't give that list of the search committee members. Um, until the part where they start interviewing in the process, they know who they're going to be speaking to. Um, But I would say that, you know, for candidates, what's so important is that if there is a search consultant name on a profile, you need to call that consultant. And yes, I do get people who are lobbying me and it, and in a way it makes me laugh because I don't have control. Um, we, yes, we facilitate the process, but the decision falls in the search committee's hands. Now I want to make sure that the candidate is presenting the truest version of themselves possible. And I look at those, you know, resumes and cover letters and I will help guide a candidate based on, you know, if they do have these types of experiences, this is what the search committee is looking for. Because we certainly, you know, we don't want to waste the candidate's time and we don't want to waste the search committee's time if it's not a good match. Um, But at the same time, I always encourage search committees to look at every single application possible because there's always a chance, you know, that I miss, you know, your largest donor who happened to apply for this position or something. (laughs) There's always a chance we can make a mistake or, you know, misread something. So I always encourage committees to look at every single application. Um, But, you know, there's not really an an insider's guide other than, you know, talk to that search consultant. Um, That's what we are here for. Um, We want to make sure that it's a good match. And I always offer, yes, if you want me to look over your CV and cover letter, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, haven't been in the job market. And I fully recognize that. And, you know, it's just like you hearken back to the career development office. (laughs) at Mm -hmm. your undergraduate institution. It's just like, I haven't, you know, updated my CV in years. And um, it can, it's a process. It can be a very arduous process. And we recognize that and certainly don't want somebody to be at a disadvantage just because, you know, they haven't been in the job market consistently. You know, we recognize some of the best people probably are not. They're invested in their current positions. Um, So I'm always happy to look over materials prior and, you know, just offer general suggestions, but I certainly do not do, you know, narrow down the groups before I present them to the search committee. That's just, I do not hold that kind of power. You know, I can't speak for all the search firms, but for Greenwood Asher, um, we just facilitate the process and make it as clear as possible for the search committee. Um, And then I will just say that, you know, the search committees are really great at, you know, they take the people who sign up for these or are asked to be on these search committees. They recognize what a responsibility is and they really do take the time um, to read through those applications. Um, they may, you know, ask me, you know, to give a brief summary of each candidate. And if they ask me to do that, of course, I'm happy to do that. And I will call up the candidate and say, you know, if I'm share one thing about you with this committee, what is it? <laughs> because you have to understand I'm working on all different kinds of searches. I'm, right. I just closed a Dean of Aerospace search and, you know, I've never worked in aerospace. So, Liz, that, you know, that could what be they you. Can, it might be you. I'm gonna say I'm gonna put my CV in right away. I feel like you're always in outer space. So I, I, that would get thrown straight in the trash. They'd be like, uh, "No, <laughs> crumple it up, throw it in the garbage." But you know, I'm not about to make any assumption as assumptions as to you know what. Uh, candidate for a dean of aerospace's greatest accomplishment is you know it just all blurs together to me and so i'll call up and just say you know give me your 30 second elevator pitch that you want me to share with committee and i am more than happy to do that because i know it's going to be on target and i won't be misrepresenting in any way shape or form i have a question i was just waiting for you to Get all your questions out because then oh, I'm going to no, just monopolize the rest of the time. There are some things that will everything. happen in life, but me ending, me running out of questions will never. I know, but you didn't get in your soapbox. So I'm still a little bit, I'm waiting for that part, but yes. I'm sure that'll come later. Not yet, right? Lauren, I have a really um, interesting question, and this might be a little bit 
selfish because it comes from just my own personal experience, but a lot of people, because I've been working in education for a while and being on the faculty side, always ask me about transitioning into higher education. Like maybe if they're working in K through 12, or maybe they're working in the business field or in another area where they feel like they have um, some qualifications that could be uh, helpful or beneficial valuable in higher education. And I'm always unsure, especially now, what to tell people if they feel as though they have a skill set that would translate in higher education. So just from your perspective in the recruiting and in the, the search area and, and kind of having your finger on the pulse of all these different um, searches across the country, what's some advice you would give for someone that's like, hey, you know, I want to transition into higher education. Is this a good time to transition? How can I best position myself to make a transition from private sector or corporate or K through 12 into a higher education faculty role or leadership role or executive role? What would you say to that person? I'd say it's a great time, definitely. Like I said earlier, people are open to more non-traditional candidates these days. Mm. But I would encourage them. It is it's hard for them to make the leap to someone who has, you know, never had any experience outside of a university other than their own personal education. So mm. any way that you could get involved with a university, you know, the type of institution that you want to work for, whether that's a community college, a research institution, or, you know, just a four-year institution, you know, if you could become an adjunct professor, um, if you could get on an alumni board, um, an advisory board in some capacity, you know, so many universities utilize volunteers really, really well um, to mentor students or, you know, go beyond to help with events and that sort of thing. So any way that you could bolster your experiences with a university beyond your own education um, would really help you stand out in that regard. So that's what I would encourage them to do. And another question, just as a follow-up to that, would be something that we talk about a lot on the podcast and obviously something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of social justice and equity and some of the talk about how we can better close some of those gaps and, and have a more uh, a sector that's more representative of the student body that we serve and, and of the, the, the growing population mm -hmm. of students that's going to start to change over the next uh, 10 years. And I see it already in community colleges as well as some of the career colleges where I've worked. What are some of the conversations about bringing more diverse candidates in, in the leadership roles? We know that from the podcast, it's really difficult. We, we're, trying to look for um, presidents that are black, presidents, um, black women. How can we be more mindful and intentional, some of these search, uh, these, uh, search committees in getting more diverse candidates? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just say for Greenwood Asher, that has been a priority of ours from the very beginning. Um, we are a women-owned firm, Jan Be uh, Greenwood and Betty Asher, both former university presidents who started this firm over 20 years ago. Um, and in that time, we've completed over 2,000 successful higher education searches. And um, among that, 57% of our placements have been women or people of color. And so we're really proud of that fact um, and that the fact that that has been an emphasis of ours from the get go. Um, but I would also say that as a result of this past year, um, search committees have placed a renewed emphasis on that. Um, it's not being mandated, you know, from the higher ups. It is a, a true passion of theirs to have diverse candidate pools and to really reflect the students that they're serving. And so um, we are very happy. We have um, Marion French, shout out to my colleague. She's the head of our DEI practice. And she does an excellent presentation on implicit bias that um, is requested so much these days. And we're, we're just so happy by that fact. Um, and, and it's really interesting every time I've seen her give that presentation, you know, to universities from coast to coast, you just see the light switch come on in the eyes of the 
search committee members, even over Zoom, you can just tell that, you know, they start to recognize in themselves, you know, that implicit bias in either in the culture of their college or just in their own personal nature. Um, And they really ask us to hold them accountable in that regard. Um, They identify their own implicit bias and, you know, throughout the process, whether it's a follow-up question in an interview or, you know, just in their own conversations about candidates, um, if any type of bias rears its ugly head, they want us to call them out on it. Um, And that has not always been the case. And so very, very proud of search committees for placing that renewed emphasis on that. Um, And really making sure that, you know, diverse candidates, despite, you know, if they have checked all the boxes, um, are really getting a seat um, or really being considered um, because it's not about necessarily, you know, have they done this, this and this. It's, you know, if they meet the attributes of the type of person that you're looking for as your next leader, then they should be given due consideration regardless of their background. Whether you're pacing short for your start goals or your summer melt needs a cool down, your challenges can be overcome with the right partner. In collaboration with the EdUp Experience, our sponsors, MDT Marketing, are offering a free marketing consultation. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com edup and start your free consultation. It's direction for your unique situation that will help you ramp up your marketing and enrollment efforts, and it's all for free. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup. We got to get her on the podcast too, oh, just to hear, uh, what was her name, your colleague? Oh, Marion French. She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, she, um, she, yeah, she started our diversity, equity, and inclusion practice Gosh, I mean, years ago before, you know, that term was even popular with universities and she has placed so many um, chief diversity officers at universities across the U.S. that um, I'm going to blank now on what the National Organization of Chief Diversity Officers is called. But I think at one point, every single person on the board of that organization was our placement, (laughs) (laughs) or not our placement, Marion's placement. (laughs) She's really, really carved out that space and um, done a wonderful job. You know, um, that, that's such an important piece of, of higher ed right now. As you know, every, every single leader, every college president we've had on, whether we bring it up or not, they want to talk about their commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion. And I believe them. I, I believe that that is mm-hmm. a focus of every institution, because if it's not, you're, that's not good. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. It's not good. That's, it's got to be part of, the, part of the focus. Let me ask you about Liz and I both grew up in the for-profit education sector. Doom, doom, doom. Liz, that was for you. Oh, uh, you did good. You want to do that like again? Uh, yeah, it was actually okay. an instrument and I'm playing now. No, I'm not going to do it again. That's uh, like uh, an air guitar? You did like a dirt? Uh, yes, an air uh, guitar. Uh-huh. Okay, just for, Because, you know, we're the, we're the <laughs> just a <laughs> reputation happened to follow people who worked in the for-profit sector before. As somebody doing search consulting and and search, how do people that come from for-profit institutions now play in the the nonprofit space in terms of, do they make it through search? I mean, you know, at the risk of, I know that's not a yes or no answer that you can really answer, but how do search committees typically look at people that have a for-profit background? Maybe they've even been working in a nonprofit now um, uh, you know, for, for years, but the for-profit stigma, depending on who you talk to, can stick with you. Uh, and I say you, and I'm talking about many of the people that I know that I either work with or know within the for-profit sector. And, and it's a complaint amongst, I say, us, sure. that you're typecast. So how does that play yeah. now? Yeah, no, I mean, that is definitely a real thing, but I would say that it is certainly faded um, as a result of this pandemic. I mean, 
universities are taking a hard look at their finances and for-profit is all outcome oriented. And so they recognize that people who have worked at for-profit institutions, you know, were not sitting, you know, comfortable in their positions, <laughs> that they, there were real outcomes tied to their work and they have a lot to show for it. Um, and especially now having to be nimble and innovative um, in this new post or not quite there, but post-pandemic world. Um, people from a for-profit background, um, I would say they don't necessarily have that stigma attached to them. It certainly helps if, you know, they've had both sides of the coin, you know, they've worked for nonprofit and for for-profit. Um, but in a way, I think it can really be spun as an advantage, um, whereas a lot of uh, nonprofit persons haven't necessarily been judged related to, you know, strategic planning and outcomes oriented. Um, that was a daily occurrence with for-profit. I mean, I don't know if that's your own personal experience or not, but it oh, has yeah. been with the candidates I've talked with. So, yeah, um, there's a real accountability there. And in the market is demanding that right now, um, especially parents. And that's not going away. If anything, um, I think it will be only highlighted more. Um, so I think that it can be really fun as a strong advantage. Why did you move from fundraising to search, Lauren? Because you're a fundraiser, <laughs> which, by the I way, was. is super hard. Let's talk about a it hard job. Was. It was, but it was so fun. It's all about relationships. And so, gosh, I just got so much out of it. But I'll tell you what. So my specific background was in um, alumni and annual giving. And uh, I did it at, gosh, what, four or five universities ranging from, you know, top research to, you know, small faith-based nonprofits. And I loved it at every single one. But after, I think it was 12, 13 years, I could feel myself getting comfortable and I knew I needed a new challenge. And I was just, I'm passionate about higher education. So I wanted to stay within that realm. Um, at the time, my husband was a provost at the same institution I was working at. And so I didn't, I couldn't report to him in any capacity. <laughs> and so I had to get creative. So that wouldn't I, have been uh, good. Wouldn't have been good. No, no, it wouldn't. I didn't want to go down that route. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I turned to what I do best, you know, talking to people, um, to alumni that I had come across who were in higher education executive search. And I just called them up and, you know, just said, Hey, can you just tell me a little bit more about what you do? Um, cause I was just curious. I had never been personally part of a search committee other than gosh, as an undergraduate student. And I think I was on the chair of my department search committee. So I had a very limited knowledge of what happened in, in uh, you know, executive search, specifically in higher education. And, you know, that's what I was over a group of students called ambassadors when I was an, an advancement professional and I taught them how to network and, you know, they would work university events and, you know, they would, you know, put on the smiling face for the university. But I said, you know, really, you need to be making the most of these interactions. Don't be afraid, you know, to have your own business card printed up and, you know, invite somebody to coffee, you know, if you're interested in their field, because college is, you know, all about exploring what's out there. And it was kind of a self-reflection moment on myself, you know, at least I was, I was used to the cold calling through annual giving, but I just started calling up, a, you know, alumni, and then I started calling up search firms, um, just to, you know, see if there were opportunities there, and I will just say that it has worked out perfectly. I absolutely love working for Greenwood Asher. I'm so glad I landed at Greenwood Asher. <laughs> Jan and Betty have just been the most amazing mentors, and I have learned so much from them in such a short amount of time, but gosh, I, I have gotten so much experience um, in this field, and it has just broadened my knowledge of the industry so much beyond, you know, I, I felt like I had a pretty good knowledge given, you know, that I was the external piece of the university and my husband was the internal um, between the two of us. I felt like we had covered a lot, but um, being part of executive search for higher education, I work with all kinds of universities, all kinds of positions. Um, I can tell you that every single university, and I know you know this as a result of your podcast has its challenges, but every single university has a heart to it. And, 
You know, there is nothing like higher education when it comes to not only making the difference in a student's life, but in a family's life. And it is, it's addictive. I mean, once you're in this industry, I, I, I don't know how you leave it. I could not leave it because um, it is just so impactful on so many lives. And I'm grateful now to be part of a search firm where I work with search committees. I work with candidates. I work with uh, institutional leaders and I'm able to, because I only have up to about four searches a time. I know there's some search firms that where a consultant can have up to 18 searches a time. And that is just like a factory to me. I could not do that, but I'm able to continue that relationship building. Like I did when I was a fundraiser, you know, it is not unheard of for me to talk with a candidate years later uh, and, you know, just check in with them, see how they're doing. And, you know, if they're looking, you know, for a new opportunity. I love having that consistency in relationships um, and seeing how interconnected this industry is. Um, and, you know, in small. addition it's to, smaller you know, than people think. It is so small. Very it small. is so small. Yeah. And, you know, if I could say anything, you know, to somebody who's thinking about getting out on the job market, use that network and don't be afraid to cold call. You know, people are very open to sharing about their universities, about their positions. You know, just like I told those students years ago, you know, you don't be afraid to use that network because, gosh, as a search consultant, network is everything. I mean, I will pick up the phone and try to recruit candidates for a search, but, you know, the calls that can sometimes be the most impactful is when I call a, you know, university president or provost and I say, you know, who are the rising stars in your organization? Like, who are the people that stand out? You know, who would you nominate for this search? And, you know, it, it's bittersweet for them to give me those names, but, you know, a good manager is somebody who wants to see their people succeed. Um, and so we place a lot of emphasis on those nominations and nominations come through network. So don't be hesitant to pick up the phone, you know, not even a Zoom, just pick up the phone. <laughs> do uh, do Betty uh, Asher and Jan Greenwood know that they have a rock star on their hands and Lauren McCarran? That's the question. We'll, Don't we'll, ask me that question. <laughs> that's a, we'll leave that as rhetorical, but maybe if they listen to this, uh, you know, they'll they'll realize it if they don't know already. But one more question, then I'll hand it, hand it over to you, Liz. But I got to get this one before I forget. Um, so, in the world of this is a bit of a transition, Lauren. So, so uh, watch out for it. But in the world of okay. applying for a job, in most industries, there, like if you go on LinkedIn, for example there's something called the easy apply button where you upload your resume and then you click easy apply, right? So I've got some friends mm -hmm. that work in technology. My, you know, my brother-in-law works in technology, uh, others, when they apply for a job, it's like, oh yeah, I just hit the easy button. My resume goes off and it applies, right? Higher ed hasn't transitioned yet out of the academic application process, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, so in doing research and I'm getting ready to talk to Lauren and I look at what's out there and they want a nine page cover letter and 27 references and, mm -hmm. and all these things. Do you see a willingness within higher education to adapt at some point to the speed at which hiring processes work in other industries? I won't say that I see a need at this point uh, or a willingness, um, but I would say that I personally see that need. I know that this process is arduous. I know if somebody is looking as a rising star, they're not looking just at one position, you know, unless it's like at their alma mater and that is their dream job. I know that they're applying for multiple jobs. And, you know, that's the hard part because search firms that what I've learned that is that higher education search firms handle the process differently. At Greenwood Asher, you can go on our website and you can see our process outlined. It is very clearly defined. Um, there are no surprises for candidates. We tell you upfront, we need a CV, a cover letter, and a list of five references. Um, if a search committee decides to introduce a questionnaire later on, then we will give them a heads up in that regard, but we won't make it required because we know this takes time and we know that the, you know, those people that maybe, you know, stand out candidates may not have that time because they're putting out fires at their own institution. And it is just, it is a lot to ask candidates. You know, I was talking to one the other day who 
I think they had done three personality assessments, each followed up with a 30 minute or one hour call with the consultant. I think they had had three one or two hour interviews with the search committee. And I mean, at that point, you're looking at 10 plus hours of just investment of, you know, time over Zoom. But then also you're not factoring in all the time it took them, to, you know, to put together their materials, however many that may be, <laughs> you know, well, if you it's know, 27 Lord, references I, or not. Yeah, I'll tell and, you when I, my job here at, Clare, at Claremont Lincoln University, where I'm a chief operating officer, it was an easy, they, they did the easy button. That's how, when I applied for the job, that's how I did it. And I, oh, yeah. I actually still have all my old cover letters. So at that time, I was applying for a bunch of jobs. To your point, I was working, but I was ready to to move on. So I was applying for a bunch of different jobs. I would tell you, when I would look online, Liz, you'll laugh at this. When I would see the line that says, please limit your cover letter to five pages, I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> limit my cover letter. I can't even stretch it <laughs> double spaced to three pages. How am I going to limit it to five? I, I'm not an English major like Liz Leiba. How, how am I going to do that? Limit it to five pages. Forget it. I'm not even going to waste my time writing. I'll go, I'll go apply for this job. That's got an easier process. I, I mean, there were jobs like that, that I was like, I ain't doing that. I'm not sitting there and writing a five page cover. Now, yeah. do you really want the job then? Right. That's the question the institution might ask, but I, you know, it, it's in my mind, it's, it's about speed and time. And I have two kids at the time. One's a, you know, zero yeah. years old baby. I'm like, I don't have time to sit down and write a cover letter. I'm in my doctorate program. I've got to do yeah. my homework, you know? So you just think about that <laughs> double space. Can I get it to 1.5 spaced? How many words, you know, can I, can I do a page break and make it look, I mean, I did the whole deal, try to stretch something to three pages, Liz. I, I'm going to need you. Yeah. Next time, just send it over to me. <laughs> I, I don't know what the answer is necessarily. I wish I did, but I think that there's got to be some give on the university's part. You know, every university thinks that they're extra special and, and they are in their own way, but, you know, they, they have to understand that this is a very competitive market um, right now. And, you know, if, if, you know, the, the cover letter, the five page cover letter is not as tailored to their university as they wish it would be, they can't, you know, it's hard not to take that in their mind as a personal affront. Um, but at the same time, you know, candidates have got to recognize that it is a competitive market. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you've got to find that balance with, you know, time and effort. You know, how bad do you want this position? You got to rake order your preferences. Truly. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Limit, that, that is, limit to good, five pages. Yeah, yeah. I think the longest one I've seen was maybe 50 pages. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I can guarantee you the search committee did not read the entirety uh -huh, of that of cover course. letter. <laughs> of course not. Oh yeah. Gosh. So that's a, it's a question that's out there for sure. I was going to ask, because uh, this is something I often get asked as well, to kind of a follow-up question to my previous about people that are thinking about going into education or thinking about possibilities. When you're looking at uh, just across the scheme, uh, across the sector, and leadership roles and, and different roles that you're seeing that universities are looking for, what would you say are like the hot areas in like our sector? Because I know a lot of the time, because I work in instructional design uh, and, and with the pivot to online, the online uh, director of online has become a big position and looking for those that know how to strategize in terms of the, the online learning aspects of the university. So are you seeing some emerging leadership positions that maybe, or even like how Joe alluded to, maybe someone that's a little bit more adept at some of the marketing and enrollment. Are there some hot areas that you're seeing that are emerging as we're coming out of these unforeseen times that we have over the past year or so? Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say chief diversity officers, you know, if the university mm -hmm. did not have one, by gosh, they've listed a position for one now. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely a huge uptick in those. Also, um, you know, chief financial officers, VPs of administration, um, you know, dealing with the nuances that this pandemic has created in regards to budget and enrollment and strategic outlook, um, you know, just trying to, you know, bring everyone across the university together <laughs> in a cohesive mm -hmm. plan, um, have seen an uptick in those as well. But, 
you know, I'll say that this has been a record year for, you know, presidential turnover. Um, Mm. And I think that that's only going to continue when you look at the statistics. I think, you know, ACE did a study back in 2017, I think. Um, and I think it found that, you know, the major- 10% of presidents were over the age of 70 or 71 or something like that. I mean, it was a significant chunk um, and the others were not far behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I just I, I follow uh, faith based universities closely. And I know the um, Council for Christian Colleges and Universities came out with an article recently where there's been an uptick in their presidential turnover, um, you know, from 11 in 2018 up to, you know, 14 just this past year. And, you know, already this year, nine have announced that, you know, they're going to be leaving. And I guarantee that come February and March, once they settled into the spring semester, that there's going to be a flurry of new announcements in that regard. And when you have presidential turnover, you have executive cabinet turnover and dean level turnover, you know, all across the board. So, you know, that is only the first domino to fall. Um, so, it, I mean, it's a great time to be looking for a position, but know that, yeah, the competition's out there, too. <laughs> is there any talk, Lauren, about when you think about turnover? I, I read an article a few, a couple, maybe like two months ago about uh, a woman that came from, she was very highly renowned and she went to NYU and, and got a leadership position there and then ended up leaving almost immediately because of just her not feeling supported there. She was, I think she was a, a yeah, very well renowned in South Africa. She was just like, I just didn't, I wasn't ready for what I encountered. What, if anything, have you heard about initiatives to be more mindful about bringing candidates into environments that will nurture them because you talked about turnover and that's a big but I mean Mm -hmm. when you think about and I know you know this all of the money and time and energy and effort it goes to recruiting candidates especially candidates from diverse backgrounds and then when you bring that person in they're like okay wait this is not what I was looking for and then they just immediately leave are colleges and universities talking about that have you heard that in the circles about providing some kind of resources or looking at ways to nurture talent once talent is actually recruited so that you don't have uh, this high turnover? Yeah, I saw that article you're talking about. Oh, and it's just so sad because it was clear that, gosh, she could have been such a leader there. Um, But yeah, it's a balance of front end and back end. So I talked earlier about the importance of those front end conversations with the constituents of the university, not only in regards to what attributes are needed, but, you know, really we do a SWOT analysis. You know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of your current organization in the area this person's going to? You know, what are the opportunities? opportunities and threats. We want to give, you know, the prospective candidates a clear picture of what they're walking into, because it is, you know, a search consultant's worst nightmare for, you know, everybody to celebrate a placement and then them to start on day one and we get a phone call and they're just like, oh my gosh, what have I walked into, you know? Um, So there's definitely on the front end, you know, universities need to be clear um, of what their challenges are and not try to, you know, put, tie a bow on everything and make it look pretty. Um, that's just not reality right now. And then on the back end, definitely putting in the support structure in place, whether it's through the university's HR office or, you know, our firm offers executive coaching and will work with both the university and the placement to make sure that, you know, those clear expectations and, you know, those conversations facilitating, you know, between whatever, you know, university constituents they're working with, um, that they feel supported um, and empowered um, to move forward in the, you know, whatever agenda they might need to do so. Um, so it is a balance on both and definitely universities need to be attuned to that because, you know, as the demand for more diverse hires Um, has risen, there definitely needs to be that support there. And I know that, you know, that equity conversation for students, um, eliminating those equity gaps is um, what a very strong one that's happening right now that needs to be happening right now. But it needs to be happening for the, the faculty and the staff as well. 
Agreed. And thank you for sharing that insight, because it's definitely something I've been thinking about and wondering what the conversations internally are looking like. We want to be cognizant of your time. We really appreciate all of your insight. This has been really illuminating as far as just so some of the stuff that we might not really necessarily know or think about. So to have that insight, that inside scoop on what's happening in some of those circles, I think it's really um, very interesting for us to be able to kind of be able to guide how we think and, and think about the sector, what we need to do to improve and continue to get better. So thank you for providing that. And I wanna wrap up, but we wanna wrap up with the last couple of questions for you, which would be, uh, what, if anything, did we miss? Is there anything you wanna tell us? Any initiatives or, or anything that you wanna share about your organization? And the last thing would be, what do you see as the future for higher education? And do you believe you performed better than your husband on this podcast? Uh, you can leave that for long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not going to answer that question. <laughs> you guys are but, one. You, um, you, you both did amazingly well. So I'll, I'll answer before you. you did awesome. No, it's been a pleasure, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'll just, you know, put my contact information out there. If you'll go to greenwoodsearch.com, anybody who's curious about the search process, you know, if you have a position at your university that you need fill, we'd love to help you out. You know, if, you know, you're curious about being a search consultant or, you know, just, you know, want to talk. Um, if you go to our website, greenwoodsearch.com, you can find my contact information. And I'll just add that um, Greenwood Asher was actually acquired by Kelly Services, which I know most people are familiar with. We were acquired back in November and it has just been a really exciting process, expanding our scope with being part of a Fortune 500 company that's been so strong in the K-12 space. And now, you know, bringing our higher education expertise, you know, really working together to for just more great opportunities for great candidates out there. And then, you know, noting my husband, I will uh, just put in a plug. He has recently started his own consulting firm, Higher Education Solutions, um, where he is working with institutions. He has a background um, from the federal government. Um, and so he's working with institutions to advise them on how to spend their federal emergency funding um, while staying in compliance and then also helping with grant applications. So if that's a need, you can certainly email him at Chris at org. Lauren, you better get his butt back on here so we can help him get his message out, you know, you know, tell oh, him. Yeah, absolutely. Part two. He's I, I, I got, tell him I have his collection plate ready. So whenever he's ready, I'm going to be passing it Joe's direction so that we can get... <laughs> Get him well, on thank here, get you him to guys. give us a message. <laughs> thank you, guys. He's already working with a, a great number of institutions and has really been blessed in that regard. And we are just happy to help institutions across the U.S. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. This has uh, been an amazing episode, something that we don't get to touch on too much, which is executive search. It's a lesser known part of higher education, but so important to all of our futures, whether you are hiring someone or, or will be looking for a job. Uh, yourself and uh, Lauren McCarran, Higher Education Senior Executive Search Consultant at Greenwood Asher and Associates. It has been an absolute honor and pleasure, Lauren, and I mean it. We love you guys. You and your husband are amazing. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Liz. And I meant to say congratulations on your one year anniversary. That's crazy. Oh, I can't believe it's you. been a year. Y'all have done so much. <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, I mean, doing these many episodes with Liz, it's truly, I should <laughs> it's get an award. It's I a challenge, award. right? <laughs> anyway, but thank you so much, Lauren. Okay, thank you. Hey, everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.